traditionally in Buddhist countries, when one wishes to affirm that they are a Buddhist, or when someone wants to take upon special practices for a day or for some longer period of time, they traditionally take the precepts, as we have done here, and the refuges. It's the formula for becoming a Buddha, Buddhist. <coughs> Maybe a Buddha. <laughs> we'll soon be there. So soon in the talk, I got a laugh. Pretty good. <clears throat> it actually becomes somewhat of a habit of many people to just take the refuge and precepts each day, or even many times a day, depending on what it is they're doing. And it sometimes has the air of being rather form only and not so meaningful or without much thought. Although for someone who's done it all their life, I'm not sure just what it means. <clears throat> but we in, the twi- we in America who are not born Buddhist, when we come to practice, sometimes some teachers will ask you to take precepts and some people like to take refuges. What does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha or the Dhamma and the Sangha? We might ask whether living as we do in America or Europe or these wealthy countries in the world today, whether we really need any refuge other than what we are currently have. Maybe earlier in our life, rather superficially, we may have taken refuge in drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Maybe now that we've grown up and become middle-aged yuppies, we can take a refuge in our IRA, our MBW, and a VCR. <laughs> and there's other options for whatever you want to take refuge in. <laughs> is that what taking refuge is all about? I given or in preparing this talk, I had to give some thought to what is it that we're doing with our lives mostly is kind of endlessly pursuing after one thing after another that will give us some sense of stability or happiness or security or protection or well-being that doesn't get, that provides us some sense of security. And it seems from one perspective or in a very, from a very deep sense to be quite senseless to chase after these things which we know will at a very deep level will not provide what it is we ask them to do for us. And it seems to me that there really is a need for some refuge that can provide some stability and protection and some sort of sanctuary for 
our innermost self in the world in which we live. And it seems to me that recognizing that and searching to find and then going to or taking a refuge in what we find to be most useful is a really considerate and a very sane thing to do. Traditionally, people take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And the Buddha is not taking refuge in the person, Prince Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, who lived some 2,500 years ago, but is taking refuge in the personification of the wisdom which leads to liberation, that frees the mind from all of its bonds. Taking refuge in the Dhamma is taking refuge in a very basic sense, in the way things are. Just the natural law which governs all of ours and other existences. Taking refuge in the Sangha is recognizing and appreciating one's connection and sense of belonging to a community or a group of beings who share the same understanding of what's really going on. Here at this three-month retreat, whether we have verbally and physically and actually acknowledged it to ourselves, we have, in practice, have taken refuge in these three things, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Tonight I'd like to talk about taking refuge in the Sangha. The words used to take refuge in the Sangha, in the Buddha's language or in Pali, are Sanghang Saranang Gachami. And I'd like to speak about each of these three words and mostly from my own experience how I've come to understand what these three words mean in one's, my own personal practice. First word I'd like to speak about is Saranang. It means protection, shelter, refuge, or sanctuary. The meaning of protection of the word saranang can be seen here in the conditions at IMS in which we have benefited from just while we've practiced for three months. There are very specific conditions and they really amount to keeping us very isolated 
secluded, and really protected from the 20th century or most of what's out there. We just don't have to deal with intrusions or unwelcome intrusions in our life. And so the conditions are really set up to protect us from conditions. The meaning of support or shelter can be seen in when we come here and stay as a group, there's been about 120, I guess about 120 of us living in these <clears throat> buildings now for three months. And we're able to support each other in many ways, just in using the facilities and using material goods, we're able to share and consume a lot less than we might if we were living individually in the world. More importantly, we're able to support each other in endeavoring to do something in common. And as you know, sometimes when practice gets hard, if you come to the hall and sit, and there are others sitting here, it can be very supportive in a very silent and but very real way. But the, maybe the greatest support that we use here amongst all of us is the support of the instructions. Just having the opportunity to come here and receive the instructions which point towards the liberation of mind is possibly the greatest support you can get in your life. The conditions are good, but without the instructions, this place really wouldn't be such a refuge. So the, even, maybe mostly the instructions that we receive here is the support that we get. The meaning of refuge, of the word saranam, comes from the word to escape or to flee, to be a fugitive. And it's real clear that when we come here and stay together as a group in a community for this period of time, that we have been able to escape from the entanglements of our normal daily life whatever those entanglements are of job and relationships, dealing with money and political system and the news and TV and this, that, and the other thing. We are able to come here and get away from, to flee from those entanglements. Near the end of my stay in Burma, I'd been there several years, and for most of the time, I had been practicing intensive meditation. And at the meditation center where I was staying, they really do a good job of protecting you. They put the 
they instruct everyone who comes through the gate not to have anything to do with foreigners and above all not to talk to them. And if anybody, if any Burmese is talk, caught talking to foreigners, they're just about hounded out of the place because they really want to give foreigners the chance to practice, to have the best conditions and not be bothered. But Burmese people just love to talk to foreigners. <laughs> and I'd been there for several years, and so a lot of people knew me. <clears throat> or at least they recognized me as being there year after year when they would come for their month-long vacation or something. And so gradually they began to get a little bit daring or whatever. And they used to come to my room and see me. And they would bring things. They would usually offer something, but come and try to talk. They like to try to speak English. And they're really joyous if you can speak a little Burmese. Unfortunately, I learned a little bit. And it got... Once I started, once I stopped practicing intensively and was studying a little bit of Pali and, and a little bit of Burmese, it seems though somebody put the news out and everybody was coming. It was really getting quite <laughs> quite bothersome, to put it mildly. And just before I was going to leave, I, two more people came to see me two sisters, and they insisted that I go to meet their teacher, their Sayadaw, their favorite meditation teacher. And they took me to the outskirts of Rangoon to one small meditation center, monastery. It was in a piece of jungle which is surrounded by suburbia. And I met their teacher and even in the midst of the hubbub of suburban Rangoon, this was a real island of tranquility and peace and calm and refuge that was very distinctive, and no one knew me. And so I got the opportunity to stay there for about two weeks just before I left Burma. And it was a real... refuge in many ways to just stay with these about a dozen monks and about 20 older women who kind of looked after the place and just have nobody around that knew me and almost no one who spoke English. It was really a great refuge. Another result of protection, shelter, and refuge, not a direct meaning of saranang, but another result of this, is that when one takes refuge in a place, the people that they take refuge with are very inspiring. In some way, there's a real close identification with them and what they do and how they are when I was practicing also. I didn't usually read, but when I, one time when I was doing metta meditation, I started reading this book called The Splendor of Enlightenment. It's a two-volume book about the life of 
the Bodhisattva and the Buddha after his enlightenment. And it was about the only thing I'd read in about, other than some few letters, that I'd read in maybe three or four years. And so my mind really wasn't full of 20th century anything. And I was just reading about the time of the Buddha and the Buddha doing his practice and different ascetics and some of the great disciples of the Buddha and just how they strive, how they strove for their, in their practice and their attainments and their understandings and their wisdom. And it was like, it was so inspiring. I felt like I was, that they were in the next room. In some way it was just a really deep connection with beings who do the same thing. Extremely inspiring. Can override all sorts of manifest difficulties. Just the inspiration. It's another result of taking refuge. Along with that, another result is the sense of community. Who can deny that even though we come here from all over the world and maybe no two of us live in the same town, or maybe there's a few, and yet just in three months' time, I'm sure we all feel that this is a pretty solid community of heart, whether it's community of home or not. I'm sure we all feel that we're deeply related to one another and have strong feelings of kinship. It's a result of having taken refuge here in this place and with this group of people. Some may think that this idea of taking refuge in a sangha or in a group is quite opposite to our Western way of being very individualistic and independent and not dependent on others. This idea of, and this our practice of being strongly individualistic and independent, of course is beneficial in that it, one can generate a lot of strength and confidence and can an energy to find your own way. And it's very helpful even in spiritual practice. There are many hermits, ascetics, or lone monks, not so many lone nuns, but some, who are so independently minded that they can really benefit from their independence and yet still be connected to a sangha. This individual streak in us can also sometimes have rather negative consequences or results that can lead to a lot of sense of self-accomplishment and pride that can lead to arrogance and rather self-satisfied contentment. And for some of us, the necessity to be individual, to, to, to try to make it on our own, can lead to a real sense of alienation or isolation. 
And even feeling alone in a crowd is quite common in Western civilization for people to feel alienated from their neighbors or isolated. So some say or some might think that going for refuge is really a sign of weakness where you have to depend on other people. But it's not really that. It's quite the contrary. A first way of taking refuge is just to pay homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And it's a mental attitude expressed verbally and by your bodily actions of reverence in recognition of something greater than your own petty self. And in fact, this recognition and a reverence and appreciation for something greater than our limited self-concept is really necessary for one to make or for one to even have a spiritual life. Because really all spiritual practices or growth is conditioned by our understanding and our belonging to a community larger than ourselves. It's the essence of spirituality to come to understand our connections and relationship with other beings. The second word I would like to discuss, now this, what I've just talked about, is saranang. It's the refuge or protection that we go to. The first word of the phrase is sanghang, which is generally understood to be the a group or assembly or a fraternity of monks or disciples or people who practice a particular uh, discipline or meditation technique. There are many different understandings of the word Sangkang. And some of them are very narrow in scope and some of them are very broad in scope. Unlike taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dhamma, taking refuge in the Sangha is personalized, it's personified by people and other beings, maybe seen or unseen by some of us. And personally, I found taking refuge in someone I knew to be very difficult. I just couldn't... I just couldn't bring myself to take refuge in anyone, not even a group. It just didn't, I guess I had too much of a streak of our Yankee independence. It seemed like I was surrendering something or submission or disempowering myself to somehow acknowledge that I would take refuge in other people. So I'm going to go through a little personal history of how mm, I no longer have that understanding. But in each case, interestingly enough, the 
group which I considered Sangha was always the group that I was most identified with and probably attached to most of the time. When I did my first retreat, of course, as everyone knows, the first retreat's a horror show. <laughs> and even though I didn't understand the word Sangha and didn't take refuge in them, my identification of with the group was limited to the worst yogis there, <laughs> the ones who were suffering the most. I think even the teachers weren't included in my idea of we who are doing this hard work. They were somewhere else. They didn't belong to the group that I was in. <clears throat> it's a very divisive or very fragmented understanding of sangha or community. Later when I came on staff at here at IMS, my understanding broadened a little bit to at least include the teachers and the other yogis and the board of directors and the advisors and different people that I personally knew who were connected with this meditation practice. But it was still limited to those that I had personally met or somehow had contact with. Then, as I was leaving staff, at one point, Joseph gave me a gift. It was the book, How the Swans Came to the Lake, which is a narrative history of Buddhism in America. And I had spent all of my spiritual life, so to speak, just involved with IMS. I had never tried any other spiritual disciplines and didn't read other books about other spiritual disciplines, even other Buddhist I didn't even read Buddhist books. I just was into practice. And so I read this book, supposedly about how Buddhism has come to America up to about 1980, early 80s, I guess. And I kept looking for all of the chapters about IMS. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's about a 400-page book. And about two pages deals with Theravada Buddhism in America. And it was a real shock to me to realize that IMS isn't the center of the Buddhist meditative world. <laughs> and I really had to expand my understanding of Sangha, even though I didn't know all of these Zen practitioners and Tibetan practitioners and others that were mentioned in the book, I couldn't any longer exclude them. Later when I was on staff, some of the elderly and most venerable monks from both Thailand and Burma happened to come here. And even though I was told that they were Sangha and they were monks and they were in the same tradition as I was. <laughs> it was a, only an intellectual inclusion of them in my ideas of who was on the path that I was on. And when I went to Burma much later, it so happened that the day I arrived in Rangoon was at the annual festival at the Mahasayekta 
in, it's the second week of December, and there are It's a time when about five or six thousand lay people and the four hundred most senior and venerable monks in the Mahasi tradition come for about three days, or at that time it was about five or six days, of what is it? Reunion? Or listening to Dharma talks or inspired practice and glad-handing and meeting old friends and whatever. Anyway, there was about... I walked into this yekta and there was about you know, five or six thousand people there. And I thought, my goodness, how am I ever going to practice here? But there was a feeling also of it being a very closely knit family. In some way, anyone who walks through the gate is understood to be you know something about them. If they come to the yekta to practice, you know something about them, and that's enough for you to include them in your spiritual family. And you get that feeling when you go there also that you belong there. And so my idea of sangha at that point really took a quantum leap and it started to include people that I didn't know. later after I had ordained, or when I ordained, it was a major step. Although it didn't seem major at the time, it was just another day, another event. I was deep into practice. But I look back on it and realize it was probably one of the happiest days, if not the happiest day of my life. Entering a community of monks, that as soon as you shave your head and put on robes, it's like, I don't know, it's really something special. It's, it's even better than being born, somehow. I don't know, just, I mean, we don't remember that, but it's like being born consciously into the family you've always wanted to be born in, with the best father and lots of brothers. And actually, there were quite a few nuns who came to my ordination and I included them as my sisters. It's a really, and they're really all friendly. I mean, they just suddenly become your best buddies and they're willing to teach you how to wear these robes that you can't keep on and keep falling (laughs) off and they're willing to shave your head so that you don't end up a real bloody mess. And It's a real camaraderie and not very jovial, I wouldn't say, but it's a real... <laughs> not a, not a Mahasiyak, but... It's a very deep, touching connection with a Sangha. Very personal. There were other times experiences in Burma where I just had different connections with different groups of people or different events where my understanding of who I was connected to and who I felt were my spiritual kin changed and grew and included others that I had never included before in Sagain, which is a town 
across the river from Mandalay. There's one hill, well, it's a series of hills, the Sagain Hills, and it's, it's quite big. It's several miles long and across and whatnot. The whole of it is covered with monasteries and nunneries and pagodas. It just, you walk out of one, you walk into another. You walk up some stairs, you're in one, out of another. And you can walk around for days and never come to a town or a commercial thing. And you just go from one monastery to another, to a hermit, to a pagoda, to a nunnery, to a... It's a fascinating place to just wander around. Because everywhere you go is home. It's just like you're the most welcome person in anyone's day there. Of course, a foreigner is very welcome anywhere, but... You could, get, you could go there and get lost for a lifetime quite easily and just never come out and just not check what's going on out here. It's quite nice, actually. Although, when I was there and wandering around and meeting some of these hermits and recluses and famous people that are hidden away in caves and pagodas and whatnot, I got very disillusioned because you'd walk for half a day and you'd get way up this pagoda or this monastery where one monk stayed way up there. And you'd kind of come around the corner and you'd walk in on him. And he'd be tinkering with his radio. <laughs> it's like, what is, he doing? what is he doing playing with his radio? I thought he would be deep in some meditative state or something. And there's a lot of monks that, and others that are just tinkering around with radios of one sort or another. <laughs> My idea of who I was connected to suddenly came into the 20th century and it was quite grounding but a little bit disillusioning. After ordaining, a monk is supported in everything that you need as a monk other than your energy to meditate is provided for you as far as food and robes and uh, umbrellas and slippers and if you need transportation here or there someone's bound to offer it to you and just as a even the first day I was ordained people started offering like this and one thing that really I was not prepared for and really kind of took me a while to adjust to is when I would be walking along and people would bow. They would get down on the ground in their hands and knees and they would start bowing to me. And I felt like I should get down and bow back. <laughs> I, was, I didn't quite... I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I, I'd seen them bowing to other monks and I used to bow to monks when I was a layman. And it felt quite right. But when they started bowing to me, at first I started taking it personal. And it was really uncomfortable. I really felt embarrassed. And I wanted to bow back. Later I realized that I wasn't supposed to bow back or I wasn't supposed to say hello and how are you doing and <laughs> chat and wave and <laughs> do all these th things that lay people do. <laughs> and so then I just would stand silently and quietly and pervade metta to them. 
And I realized that what they were really doing was they were reaffirming to themselves they're taking refuge in the Sangha. Not me personally, as some guy from America that they want to know or do know or something, but it's really taking refuge in what I, what any monk in robes represents. Not only monks, there's other nuns and novices and lay people also. And I wondered, what did, what did I ever do to deserve this? You know, all of this benefits and support. And because the people in Burma are extremely poor. And the, the quality of a lot of their goods is really what we in America would call drastically inferior. And yet it's the only thing that they have access to. And so when they come and offer you something, it's, you know, I mean, they may have to work several days to get what, you, what they offer you just because they so appreciate and so value what you're doing as a monk or nun or, and meditating at the yekta. That was one level of adjustment. Later, after some time, people started coming regularly. Some people started coming regularly because they had, well, what they said, or what was translated to me, that they had faith in me, particularly, in this American monk, you know, named Ubud Rakita. And this was another whole trip. I didn't understand what it meant for people to take to have faith in me. <laughs> I was getting comfortable with the role of a monk, being a monk and people paying respect. But when it got to me personally, and they kept coming like some people would come every two weeks or every month, and they would spend, they would bring certain things, they would ask me if I wanted certain things, and it was quite, it's like I was on their circuit. On every other Saturday, they would come in the morning and offer certain things. To accommodate that behavior of them, of them, I had to really begin to commit myself even more wholeheartedly and in a deeper way to practicing and becoming and being and manifesting what it is that they were relating to, which is the Buddhist teaching in some deep way. And it really forced me to take much more seriously what I was doing there in robes, not just meditating and getting a little whatever it is, and strange experiences of one sort or another, but really having to make actually a greater commitment to being in Burma, meditating, and in robes. My teacher at that time, we used to talk about how one tree can support a thousand birds. One good monk, not only monk, actually the definition of monk includes anyone who sincerely practices meditation, male or female, but one good monk can support or can be the refuge for many thousands of people. And that was what I was actually feeling 
but wasn't quite identifying it that way. And when Sayadaw told me, then I realized that initially it felt burdensome, and later it felt very inspiring. Another interesting connection or consideration of Sangha came when I was practicing metta. And I'd been practicing metta for several months. And I was pervading metta at that time, sending metta to different groups of beings. Some of them we know, all males, all females, all noble enlightened beings, all unenlightened beings. And it was including one of the groups is to send metta to all heavenly beings, all humans, and all lower beings, beings in the four realms lower than human realm, which includes animals. And when I started pervading metta to animals as a group, I had some powerful connections or visions or very strong feelings, not kind of emotional attachment feelings, but really strong connections, particularly to whales and big birds, soaring type of birds. And there were times when, in a strange way, it felt like I was living with the whales at the bottom of the ocean in a kind of an unhokey-pokey way, but just so connected with them that it felt like there was no separation in my mind between their life and mine. And the same happened with big birds. Just, I remember, there's a lot of eagles and hawks and things that uh, periodically migrate over the yekta. And sometimes I would look at them and would seem to be there with them in a way that a real connection that is not rational but is very real when you experience it. I thought at that time that these animals were also in the sangha that I was taking refuge in because it was such a strong connection. But later I realized that it's not really taking refuge in those beings because they are also suffering creatures like we are. But there's an empathy and a compassion and a connection. But I came to understand that my, the sangha that I was taking refuge in was the sangha that practices meditation to liberate the mind. And I'm not sure that eagles and whales do that. I can't say that they don't, but... So I had to realize that I didn't really include them in the sangha that I took refuge in, even though I did feel a very strong connection with them. So this is the word sangha. The last word I want to talk about is kachami, which means to go 
or to move towards or to have access to or to realize. So it's sanghang, saranang, gachami. I go to or I find refuge in the sangha. This moving towards or this going towards the sangha as a refuge is a conscious act. It's not just kind of unconscious or willy-nilly. It's a very conscious act directed towards the goal of liberation. We take refuge so that we may become or so that it supports our path or our struggle or our efforts to liberate the mind. And it's based on knowledge. It's not blind faith in some group of people that you just want to feel good with. It's based on knowledge and it's inspired by faith. It has a volitional nature because it's conscious and you choose to do it. It's not just theoretical. It's not just from the books. Oh yes, I'll take refuge in the the Sangha. It's very practical and deliberate act. The understanding that we have of taking refuge is first understanding that there is a need for refuge in our life as we live it in the 20th century. Understanding that there's a need gives rise to a confidence or a faith that is justified. And it also gives rise to some inner confidence and assurance or some calmness that arises from assurance. It's also understanding that there is a refuge and that, <clears throat> and that we need the refuge. When we understand that we need a refuge, we can persist patiently in pursuing it. If we don't know that we need it, we won't persist. We'll just take it or leave it. If it gets difficult, leave it. But when we know, or when we understand that we need a refuge, whatever is required is what we'll do. And thirdly, it's understanding the nature, the sublime nature of taking refuge, in that it is for the liberation of mind. This is in our daily life or in all of civilization now, the understanding of liberation and how and why it's necessary and how to do it is a very subtle, actually sublime, it's exquisite understanding. It's not easy to come to it. But when you can come to that understanding, it's not so difficult to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. When one takes this step to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, as I'm talking about tonight, it's not an impersonal ritual. It's a very personal decisive step, actually, in one's life. Just to come here and practice, even though you didn't know it, 
was taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. In a way, there are greater takings of refuge. But just practicing is an initial understanding of and taking of the refuge. One should understand that we don't take refuge to become a Buddhist or to become identified with some popular teacher or some very um, current vogue trend in America or any place else. But it's really to support our endeavor to liberate our mind. It's also improper to understand that taking refuge is not submission. It's not disempowerment. And it's not the loss of individuality or independence. In fact, it requires us to be very individual and very independent in our practice of taking the refuge and doing the meditation. And it can actually lead to and give one a very strong and devoted energy in your practice. And even though you might verbally acknowledge you're taking refuge to another person or by bowing to the Buddha Rupa or whatnot, it's really an affair of the heart. You can say the words a hundred thousand times, but it's not that that is the real taking of refuge. It's the movement of the heart towards the Sangha however you conceive that. It's the movement of your heart towards that as a refuge. When you can understand the benefit and the need and you can actually, and the heart actually moves towards the Sangha as a refuge, there's a steadiness of mind, a fearlessness of mind and a groundedness of practice that just can't be overwhelmed by the ebb and flow of our daily life. Since I've been back in the States, I recently went to visit one friend who had been a long-term yogi when I was here as a long-term yogi many years ago. And he recently, within the past five or six months, has been invited to a community near here to teach meditation. And it's a group of people who'd gotten together to have a sitting group and were very committed to practicing, even though most of them had never done a retreat, but they didn't have any teacher. One of them knew of this fellow and invited him to come there, to live there in that town and to teach, to have a weekly sitting group and to do some 
little bit of teaching, you know, during some of the days. And so he went there to this town where he doesn't, didn't know anyone about five months ago. And he started this teaching at this weekly sitting group. Many years ago, he contacted the HIV virus. He's HIV positive now, and his condition is getting more... He's getting weaker, and he's getting more pain, and he's getting more depleted. And one, shortly after he'd gone to this village to teach, he was giving a Dharma talk one night, or he was scheduled to give a Dharma talk one night. So he told these people, there was about 40 or 50 there, he told them what it, what it was like to live with HIV positive, the AIDS virus, for those who, I can't believe anybody would know, but he has AIDS, and he just told them what it was like to be involved in the Dharma and to live with AIDS and that he was getting, you know, his condition was getting worse. And contrary to what we might expect in a middle-class suburba, suburbia in America, the people were extremely interested and received the information and him with open arms in a way that was surprising to him, actually. And subsequent to his sharing that information with him, they've come forward to support him in a way that is completely unexpected. They're, they're, they're cooking all of his food for him, and they're just making life as easy as they can for him. And giving him tremendous amount of love and concern and consideration for the condition he lives with. And he continues to go each week to lead this sitting group and instruct them in meditation. When I went there to visit him, we were talking about his condition. And he told me that it's getting much worse and it's getting very painful. And he's not able to any longer now to continue teaching them meditation at this in this community and he was saying how even the little things like the day before I'd gotten there he'd gone out with his partner to get a little Christmas tree for their house and they had brought it back and put lights on it and they'd gone to at another time they'd gone to a craft fair to look for some gifts or something. And he said, even that is just beginning to be too much, too difficult, too meaningless. Because the only thing that's having any meaning for him now is to observe his mind and his body deteriorating. The Dhamma is the only thing that holds any interest for him now. And he was talking about how the Sangha that he was a part of was very supportive and 
he really could take refuge in it, and they were taking a lot of refuge in him as being their instructor. But the day I was there, the night that I went to their sitting, he had to tell them that he was going to stop being their teacher. And they still, in fact, they were very happy for him to stop if that's what he needed to do. Because he just told them that for this period of time and for who knows how long, he really just has to do his own practice just by paying attention to the conditions that he lives with. And in this way, he really has given himself up to the Dhamma. He's taken maybe the absolute final refuge of his life to just practice the Dhamma for as long as he can. It's that necessity of a refuge that we're all facing. Whether we know it so immediately or not. But it's that need for a refuge that is just below the surface in our lives. So let's sit for a little while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.